I read an article this week in uh, Christianity Today, and it was celebrating the 20th anniversary of PEPFAR. I'm not sure how many people know what PEPFAR is. Uh, President, uh, former President George W. Bush um, was actually speaking last year about PEPFAR, and somebody asked him in Texas if that was a kind of toothpaste. Um, it's not. Um, PEPFAR stands for the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. And it was an initiative by the U.S. government in 2003 that has been incredibly impactful. So if you don't know the story, a little bit of context. Uh, in the 1990s and 2000s, HIV-AIDS was uh, unbelievably epidemic throughout the, uh, well, the whole continent of Africa amongst other areas in our world as well. And there were places where infection rates were in the 30 to 40 percent of adults. It was insane. Uh, there was then, as there is now, no cure for HIV-AIDS. But we did invent in the late 1990s some medicines called ARTs, antiretroviral treatments. And ARTs are, are medicines that you take that keep AIDS, I'm sorry, HIV from becoming AIDS, right? And you have to take them constantly over your lifetime. But if you do, they're pretty effective and you can avoid ever getting to the, the uh, age stage, AIDS stage of that disease. So in 2003, um, President George W. Bush's administration passed the PEPFAR initiative, and we began to supply ARTs and other uh, HIV and AIDS medicines to people around the world. This was one of those things that was both um, bipartisan and also hated by everybody. I mean, it, it passed on a bipartisan level, but also, you know, the there were, there were people on one side of the, of the world that didn't like it because they thought it was sort of a, a save-the-world um, crazy liberal agenda, and people on the other side didn't like it because it was very uh, invested in working with faith communities and faith-based organizations to get these medicines out. Um, but, but it got passed, and it has been nothing short of extraordinary. So in 2003, we estimate that there were about 50,000 people in Africa on ARTs. Today, there are 20 million people on, in Africa on ARTs. I had the privilege in 2013 of visiting a small mission hospital in Kenya where my former congregation has run an HIV-AIDS clinic for a couple of decades. And that congregation by itself, along with our government and the PEPFAR funds, care for 5,000 aged patients on a regular basis. Um, so month in, month out, for years, they've been serving these families. And I had the privilege of going and visiting some of those families in their homes. And I got to talk to children who had moms and dads because of the medicine that our government and our churches made available. And I actually talked to children who didn't have HIV AIDS because um, the PEPFAR program also provided this really simple treatment that prevents the, the passing of HIV-AIDS from a mother to her unborn child. There has been, in the last two decades, an increase of life expectancy by 10 years on average for everyone in sub-Saharan Africa since the PEPFAR program began, more than any other region in the world over that same time period. And the U.S. government estimates that PEPFAR has saved 25 million lives. Malcolm Gerson says, PEPFAR is the closest I've ever come to seeing the miracles of the New Testament, to see people near death come back to life. 
I'm incredibly proud of our government and our country that we've been involved in this, but what I'm most excited about is not that we passed a law in 2003, it's that um, we have been faithful in this. We have somehow, in a very divided political climate, found a way on bipartisan levels to reauthorize that money every, every time it's come up for the last two decades. Uh, and, and what's so important about this reauthorization is that these medicines that we're giving must be continually taken or they stop working, right? So anybody on an ART, if they stop taking the ART, will just revert back to having HIV and then it'll become AIDS and then they're going to die. And we have been faithful. We have, as a country and we as the church, have been faithful to those people for 20 years. And we look at millions of lives saved. And maybe what I'm most proud of is that we don't really get anything out of it. I mean, the United States doesn't get extra military bases or we don't get more national security. We're just doing it because, I don't know, maybe there still is a Christ-centered component to our nation. And I think about that idea. I think about that idea that there are millions of people whose lives are literally dependent upon us being faithful, upon us continuing to care for them and meet their physical needs. And I thought, boy, what an incredible example of what faithfulness means. I think faithfulness is just two concepts. It's clarity of values and consistency of application. Right, that's it. Clarity of values and consistency of application. It's knowing what you're supposed to do and then doing it over and over and over again. That's all faithfulness is. And I think this story, the story of Joseph, is a story that's all about this issue of faithfulness. It's an issue uh, that runs throughout the story of Scripture, uh, and it is a place, I think, where we get to celebrate what happens again when people are faithful, when people choose to know what's right and do it over and over and over again. Sometimes we can change lives. Sometimes we can change relationships. Sometimes we can change continents, right? If we're just faithful in partnering with God. So let's talk about Joseph for a minute. Uh, this is a really interesting story in the life of Joseph. Um, we're told that Joseph has been betrayed by his brothers. They wanted to murder him. Then they changed their minds. They just, they just sell him into slavery. He's taken down into Egypt. His father doesn't know if he's alive, assumes that he's dead. He has no contact with his family. But we're told in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. It's really an interesting line. We hear this a lot of times in this story. Uh, the Lord, Yahweh, is with Joseph. Uh, and it strikes me as incredibly significant uh, that there is a huge difference between a God who makes our lives easy and a God who chooses to be with us even when our lives are hard. Right? Uh, God doesn't give Joseph an easy life, right? Joseph is, is not living the dream, but in the midst of all of the horrific things that have happened to him already, God keeps showing up, right? God won't leave him alone. God won't let him go. God is faithful to Joseph. And it's interesting that as God is faithful to Joseph and as God is blessing Joseph, He begins to bless Potiphar too, in fact, his whole household. Um, remember, we have this promise that one day all nations on the earth will be blessed through the family of Abraham, and here we see that happening again. We see a blessing to the nations because of Joseph. And initially, we're just told that God's being faithful, 
We don't get any good qualities of Joseph yet. We're just told God is with him. God shows up. God cares. God journeys with Joseph through the darkness and difficulty of his life. But then, finally, we get a little insight into Joseph's story, Joseph's character. So Joseph, who's been exalted in his slavery position, Joseph, who's apparently a pretty good-looking guy, Joseph has an encounter with his master's wife. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused. Listen to what Joseph says. Look, with me here, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything he has in my hand. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It's such an amazing moment in the story of Scripture. It's a moment where temptation comes, and we get a different result than we got in the garden, right? We get a result where somebody says, ah, you know what? I know what's good and not good. I know what's tov and ra, and I know what God wants for me, and I'm going to do what God wants. I'm going I'm to face down this temptation, and I'm going to recognize not only would it be wrong to sin against other people, it's a sin against God, and I don't want to do it. It is, it is really uh, an incredible moment. We don't have very many heroes in the book of Genesis, okay? So it's an incredible moment. It's really exciting. We think, yes, great. We've, we've solved this problem. And maybe you've had this experience in your life. Maybe you've had an experience in your life where some kind of temptation came along, right? Where you were like, oh man, I know I shouldn't do this thing. And it comes along and somebody asks me to do it. And I said, no. And I walked away and I felt great about myself. And then all your problems were solved, Right? No, temptation doesn't come in single doses. And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not consent to lie beside her or be with her. He doesn't just get one temptation. It's not just one time that this comes. It comes day by day. And I think this is hugely important for us as we think about what it means to be faithful. Faithfulness is not getting it right once. Faithfulness isn't about one choice that we make. It's about a decision, uh, a series of consistent choices, when sometimes I think that choice becomes harder and harder over time. There have been a lot of psychologists that have talked about willpower as a muscle. If you've ever um, exercised, gone for a run, or lifted weights, or uh, moved heavy boxes, or carried groceries in from your car, you know that over time your muscles get tired, right? The first grocery bag is really easy, and the second grocery bag doesn't feel that bad. But the tenth grocery bag, you're like, why do we need so many watermelons, right? It's exhausting. And, And the same thing is true, right, with any muscle. The first mile isn't so bad, but the second mile starts getting really rough, and the third mile, I'm like flagging down a taxi to get home. And, and so, I think our willpower is the same way. I think we often use up our willpower, right? We, we go to work, and we make all the right choices, and we're there for eight hours, and we're tired, and then we come home, and we're worn out, and our willpower for making good choices is worn down, and it's just like we can't lift another bag, Fred Craddock uh, is a Christian who spoke a little bit in an address to pastors about um, what this consistent faithfulness looks like, uh, this willpower muscle issue. He says, to give my life for Christ appears glorious. 
to pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in the blaze of glory. We all think that giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and lying it on the table. Here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But the reality for most of us is that He sends us to the bank and has us cash it in for $1,000 worth of quarters. We go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents there. Listen to the neighbor kid's troubles instead of saying, get lost, pay another quarter. Go to a committee meeting, pay four quarters. Give a cup of water to a shaky old man in a nursing home, another quarter. Usually giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's all done in these little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. This is what faithfulness looks like. It's, it's faithfully, again, little by little in these small decisions, choosing to trust God, choosing to love our neighbor, choosing to turn away from temptation. And it gets hard. And you start getting worn down. And your willpower gets tired. And then one day comes. One day, however, when he went into the house to do his work, and while no one else was in the house, she caught hold of his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. I don't know if you noticed this, but Joseph is like always being recognized by his coat. It's kind of weird. I don't know what that's about. That's, that's a bonus. Uh, I think we're going to have all kinds of opportunities in our lives to be faithful or not, to give into temptation or not. A lot of those will be regular, ordinary, normal moments. But then there's that one day. And that one day comes where, where your temptation to go your own way reaches a crescendo. And I think everybody experiences their one day in some form or fashion for Joseph, it's a sexual temptation. Uh, and I actually love his response here. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul says, flee sexual temptation. He says, all other sin is committed outside the body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. He literally says, get up and run. And that's literally what Joseph does. Joseph says, you know what? You keep the coat. I am out of here. And I believe there are plenty of times where we are called to flee sexual and other kinds of temptation. There are times where we have to say, you know what, in this moment, I can't just grin and bear it anymore. I can't just continue to keep trying to do the right thing despite all the other pressures pushing me in a different direction. I need to make a dramatic exit. It might be because of a sexual temptation. It might be that your boyfriend or a girlfriend or that person at work that you've got a connection to but you're not married to, maybe you are in a place where they want more than you're willing to give. And your only option is to say, you know what, I got to get out. And it might not be comfortable, and that person might not even want to go out with me anymore, but I'm going to flee because I don't want this in my life. It might be a financial temptation. It might be that you've got a business partner who says, hey, you know what, um, we could make a little more money if we just did some shady stuff. And you've been saying no and no and no for so long that your willpower is starting to wear down and you need a dramatic exit. 
You need to say, hey, I can't be in business with you if that's the way we're going to go. It might be that you are just worn down at the end of the day, and when your kids or your spouse come to you, your willpower for making good, selfless choices is down to zero. And your reaction is just to scream and yell because of whatever little thing somebody did. And you got to get out of Dodge. You got to go get in the car and drive around the block. You need to go take that dog for a walk, go to your bedroom and scream into your pillow. But you got to get out, right? And maybe you lose the argument. Maybe you lose the argument because you have to leave, um, but you, you just got to get out. O- on your one day, It may not be enough just to keep being faithful. You may need to make a change that costs you something significant. Sometimes being faithful means running away and leaving something behind because you are going to be consistent and clear about what your values are and who and whose you want to be. Such an interesting story with Joseph. So Joseph runs off. We have um, all of this back and forth about, hey, you know, he, he tried to attack me and I've got his garment and we're told that Potiphar shows up and comes home and he's really angry. The, the text is a little ambiguous actually about what Potiphar is angry about. A lot of folks think Potiphar believes Joseph more than he believes his wife, um, but the social situation is such that he cannot trust the word of a slave over the word of a noble woman. And so um, whatever the logic in his head, Joseph is thrown into prison. Joseph, who was already taken from his family, Joseph, who was already made a slave, now descends even further because he made a good choice. And that just doesn't seem fair, right? I mean, it seems like, hey, if I'm going to make the faithful choice, if I'm going to do the hard thing, if I'm going to do what God wants and not what I want, and if I'm going to literally sacrifice for the sake of that faithfulness, shouldn't it like work out good for me? But it doesn't always. There are often negative human consequences for making the right choice. There are often negative human, earthly, physical consequences for being faithful. We had a funeral here yesterday for a person who's not a member of our church but kind of connected to our church. His name was Michael, and Michael had a, a, a challenging life. Michael dealt with addiction for most of his life, and that was to alcohol and narcotics, and that caused a lot of brokenness with his family. When his daughter turned 12, they reconnected for the first time since she was born, and he began a journey of trying to get sober. He wasn't really successful in that until about seven years later when she had her first child. And when his first grandbaby was born, Michael decided that he was going to do whatever it took to get alcohol and drugs out of his life. And he did. It was incredible. Michael loved his granddaughter and then the next granddaughter like they were the most important thing in the world to him after Jesus. And he turned his whole life around. And it was awesome. But the effect of a life of addiction, coupled with the effect of all the withdrawal from the drugs and the alcohol that he'd been on, destroyed his body. Michael was sober for two years before he died. Two years that he got to spend with his granddaughter and his daughter and his family. 
but it sure felt for a lot of people like maybe that should have gone different, right? Maybe there should have been some positive reward after achieving sobriety with God's help through all of that sorrow. But faithfulness doesn't always result in pleasant earthly outcomes. But in Michael's life, Yahweh was with him. The Lord was with him. In Michael's life, the, the benefits of faithfulness are not experienced always in this life. The same thing is true for us. There are plenty of times where we choose to be faithful because we trust that God really knows what's good for us, that it really will be better for us to trust God, to turn away from temptation, to love our neighbor sacrificially, even though the price of that is really high, even though we don't get a reward in this life of what that looks like. Because the promise of Scripture is not that God makes our lives easy, but that in the hard parts of our lives, God is still working for our good. And that at the end of our lives, something extraordinary will come. There's a pattern in Scripture. I don't know if you've noticed this in Genesis. I want you to notice it, so I'm going to tell you. Um, there's a pattern in Scripture uh, that is really, really important in the book of Genesis. We get it first in Adam and Eve, and then we see it in a different way, in a positive way in Noah. Then we see it in Abraham, and then we see it in Joseph. pattern is really simple. God chooses people. He loves on them. He calls them good, and then He tests them. It's kind of weird, right? Like, why do we need a tree in the garden? If we just didn't have a tree in the garden, we could have skipped a lot of heartache. Right? Um, but God tests them. He tests us to see if we really will be faithful, right? If we really will partner with Him for the good of the world. Adam and Eve fail that test. Noah passes it. Right? God says, hey, Noah, I want you to build a giant boat, and I'm not going to tell you why. Go get them, right? And Noah passes the test. Abraham isn't righteous, but he's reckoned righteous. And then God says, all right, Abraham, I want you to bring Isaac to this mountain, and let's talk about what you're going to do. And Abraham passes the test. In every one of those situations, God uses that person, Noah and Abraham, and here Joseph, to work incredible salvation. God stops just blessing them, and God begins to bless other people through them. We're told after Joseph descends into the prison, Yahweh is still with him. Yahweh shows him chesed, covenant love, covenant faithfulness. We're supposed to notice this pattern because it's the pattern of Jesus. It's the pattern of Jesus who starts out with everything, who starts out good, who starts out enthroned, who is God Himself, who though He was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." This is the core story of Scripture. The core story of Scripture is that God wants to work with us like He works with Jesus. He wants people who will be faithful and trust Him to know what's good and not good and to partner with those people to bless the world. And there is always in that work of faithfulness a descent. 
Right? There is always a descent, whether it's literally into slavery and imprisonment, or whether it's simply uh, the, the trials and the dark nights of the soul and the struggles with temptation. It's not supposed to be easy to be a Christian, especially for our confirmands, we are really excited to celebrate you guys becoming members of the church today and owning your faith. We do not want you to think that it's going to be really easy because you do this, right? There are no heroes in the Bible that have an easy life, and neither will you if you choose to follow God. But the incredible promise of Scripture is that sometimes when we're willing to keep our values and lose lesser things, when we build up our faithfulness muscles, when we're consistent in the application of what matters to us, we can be a blessing to the nations. I came across a, a story that somebody sent me a number of weeks ago about a, a pastor in Ukraine, and I want to share a little bit of that story with you. Donning his flak jacket, Pastor Igor Yershov of the Protestant Bethlehem Christian Church prepares for his rounds. Today he's conducting services in the village of Maximilianivka, just a few miles from Russian lines. Church is a hurried affair, just 45 minutes of no-frills sermon and prayer. To tarry is dangerous. A Russian artillery shell recently landed next door, spraying shrapnel on the walls, destroying the roof, shattering the windows. Yet when the faithful emerge, there is momentarily a sense of serenity. It calms your soul, says Natalia. We feel that we're with God and that he protects us. But for the handful of residents, Maximilianivka is a ghost town. The few still here depend upon the kindness of others for their sustenance, including bread brought by Pastor Igor, one loaf per person. Once a week, every Sunday, this is the only time these people can get fresh bread, fresh bread that's still warm. But man cannot live on bread alone. Today, says Pastor Igor, hope is the most precious thing for people here on the front lines. Afterwards, we went with the pastor to a nearby bomb shelter, an abandoned tuberculosis sanatorium. At the shelter entrance, Alexei shows us where parts of the rocket struck a month ago. That day, he recalls, when rain began to fall and others went below, then the rocket hit. If it had been five minutes earlier, he says, no one would have survived. Down below, they have electricity, even satellite television. Anna distracts herself by cooking. She never leaves the shelter. It's horrible, she tells me. Three times shells exploded next to me. Once when I was at home, one exploded nearby. I was alone. Everything was smashed. Now I can't go outside even for five minutes. Here, there is shelter but no peace of mind. Ben Wiedemann, CNN, Maximilianivka, Ukraine. Sometimes faithfulness means running away without your robe. Sometimes it means putting on a flak jacket so you can tell the story of Jesus, deliver bread, and visit the lost. There will always be a reason to not be faithful 
There will always be an excuse in your life to say, I'm going to give in this time. I'm going to be quiet this time. I'm going to go back home and not go see that person or carry that message or make that phone call. But there are people that are trapped underground. There are people in our lives with no hope, who see no future for themselves. They don't need you to bring them Jesus once. They need you to bring them Jesus day by day by day by day. That's what faithfulness looks like. Jesus doesn't call us to be successful. He just calls us to be faithful. And if you're like me and you say, hey, I'm probably never going to be the guy that puts on a flak jacket and goes into Ukraine to preach the gospel. I'm not going to be the guy that starts a program to, to save 25 million lives. I'm not a pastor and I'm not a president. Remember that God's greatest work wasn't done through pastors or presidents. His greatest work was done through faithful slaves and convicted convicts condemned to death, even death on a cross. And don't forget the end of the story. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in earth and heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sometimes our faithfulness and partnering with God results in a changed life or a changed relationship or a changed continent, or a changed world. Let's consider what it means for us to be His faithful partners this week and remember that it is not the circumstance that makes the man, it just reveals him to himself.